Many of you, unlike your kids, we're not as honest and we're not as open about what's really going on in our heart many times, right? I don't know if you've recognized this about kids, but more often than not, they'll say things that they have no regard for. Right? Um, I remember yeah, my son at the time, he was two years old, and we're in Walmart, and uh, we're sitting in a stall, and he has to go to the bathroom, so I'm waiting for him, and they have another guy in the stall, and I'll just leave it to your imagination as to what he was doing in that other stall. But he's sitting there in this stall, and my son, at two years old, goes, he peeks his head over in there, and he goes, hey, you pooping in there? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my son, get out of here. He's like, I still got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, I don't care. We're getting out of here because this guy is not seeing my face. But kids have no regard for what they say. Unfortunately, as adults, oftentimes we mask and we hide our feelings and our emotions when certain things happen, right? What do you do when you open the present? And it's like a pair of socks. You're like, oh, oh, exactly what I wanted. And in your mind, you're like, this is awful. I will never, ever wear this reindeer sweater, Grandma. Ever. Right? But we mask it. We say, oh, this is exactly what I wanted. This is exactly what I needed. And we lie. We lie. So let me give you for an example. Maybe you're married in here, and your wife comes to you, and she says, hey, listen here. This is what I want for Christmas. I want a pair of boots. You can find them at Sears. They're brown. This is the picture. This is exactly what they look like, and they're 40 bucks. This is what we want, nothing else. But I don't know if you know this about men. We're always like, man, let's think outside of the box. I know she told me what she wanted. So instead of going to Sears and getting the boots, what do you do? You get something completely different. She tears open the box, thinks it's going to be boots, and it's like uh, running shoes. Bad idea, right? Or it's like a scale, and <laughs> it doesn't go well for you, right? Or maybe you go to your, to your wife and you say, hey, listen, honey, all I want for Christmas is an iPhone. That's, that's all I want is an iPhone. And, and so you're going under the tree, you're opening it, and it looks like an iPhone, and lo and behold, it's like some, some clippers or some shavers, which probably my wife would give me. She's growing tired of this beard. Um, but you tell them exactly what you want, and oftentimes for Christmas, you never really get what you want. A lot of times you get what you need. Right? So your wife was like, you don't need an iPhone. You need to shave that beard, so I got you clippers. So here's clippers. Maybe your husband was saying, well, baby, I, I was trying to think outside the box. You don't need boots because you have like 40 of them. You don't have any tennis shoes. Right? So oftentimes for Christmas, instead of getting what we want, oftentimes we get what we need. So here's what I would like to do to kick off this whole Christmas series. I would like to talk about a topic that I think a lot of us are going to be encouraged by, and I think that a lot of us are actually dealing with, and that is hope. Hope. Um, Romans 15, 13 says this, and this is my prayer for you guys this morning. I pray that God, who gives you hope, will keep you happy and full of peace as you believe in him. May you overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice this phrase, may you overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, my guess this morning is that many of you are tired, many of you are drained, and many of you have lost hope in certain circumstances of your life. Maybe this year didn't turn out as you hoped it would be. Maybe um, the end of the year is somewhat of a depressing time for you because you know that the year is coming to an end and you're going to have to face certain things that you know are not going to be exciting or that you know are not going to be hopeful. Let me give you a few examples. 
Maybe this year you were hoping for a child, but because of infertility, it just it didn't work out. Or maybe you had a miscarriage that left a hole in your heart and you really wanted that baby. Maybe, um, this is sad, but it's true. Maybe this Christmas you're going to celebrate with an empty chair. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you lost a dad, a mother, a son, a father. And, and for you, you're not really looking forward to Christmas because you don't really feel like you have much hope to hold on to. Or maybe Christmas is dealing with relatives and in-laws and people that you don't really like seeing or dealing with. Or maybe it's just full of drama. Maybe you plan it all and you say, this Christmas is just going to be excellent. And then for some reason, every time your family gets under one roof, it's like, Poof. right? There's not too much. <laughs> Amen. Maybe it means, and this is true, maybe it means dealing with uh, an ex-spouse. An ex maybe it means dealing with um, a, a child that you don't always live with. You get to see and you got to think about everything that's going on. You wanted a toy and it didn't turn out like you hoped it would be. So here's what I want you um, to understand this morning. Oftentimes, Jesus gives us what we need rather than what we want. Oftentimes, he gives us what we need rather than what we want. And this morning, I want to do something a little different. Um, I want to take the book of Ruth, and I'm going to give you a good bit of context and a good bit of background about what's going on. And I'm going to use the book of Ruth to um, pretty much give you some examples of what I believe is probably one of the most hopeful stories in all of the Bible, despite such tragedy, despite such loss, despite so many things going on that if you would look at this situation, you would say there is absolutely no way that you could hold on to any hope. So the book of Ruth, if you have a Bible or an iPhone or an iPad or anything during the technology age, you can turn with me to uh, Ruth chapter 1, or you can follow along on the screens. It's going to be there. But it's four chapters in the Old Testament, and Ruth actually begins um, with judges. So in this time, in the book of Ruth, there are no kings yet. Okay, so you don't have like King David ruling Israel or, or King Solomon ruling. There was only judges back then, so there's no kings this is before the time of kings, and actually in the promised land, there's a famine going on. So there's a food and there's a water shortage. So people are leaving and going to different places to get food. And so what we know is that there is this guy named uh, Elimelech, and he is married to a lady named Ruth. And he takes his entire family, he has two sons, and his sons' names are... Um, let me go back to it. His son's names are Malin and Killian. And this is what their names literally mean. They literally mean sick and dying. I don't know. That'd be like you introducing your kids and saying, hey, this is Ebola and flu. You, like, you don't do that. Okay? It's sick and dying. That's literally what their names are. So Elimelech takes Ruth. He takes his two sons. He says, let's get out of Canaan and let's go to Moab. Because there's no food in Canaan, so we're going to go to Moab. And we're going to find food. And try to find water and try to make our, our, our life there. Long story short, the Bible does, it gives no reason. It literally reads as one verse that says, they moved to Moab and then Elimelech dies. We don't know what happens. We don't, we don't know if he has a heart attack. We don't know if he gets hit by a camel. We, we don't know what happens. If something happens, the guy just dies. It doesn't give any kind of explanation. So I want you to picture this for a moment. Okay, you move out of your hometown where you've grown up your entire life and you move to a foreign country 
And all of a sudden, your provider, your husband, passes away. He dies. Okay? And so on top of this, Elimelech has, he had brought uh, his wife, his two sons, and then um, his, his two sons end up getting married to a lady named Ruth and, um, and Orpah. And so, long story short, again, you've got um, a single mother raising two sons, and they end up getting married. And then, tragically, you don't know what happens, but it just says that all of a sudden, um, Orpah's husband, uh, which was named Sick, and the other, uh, and, and uh, Naomi's husband, or, or, or excuse me, Orpah's husband dies, and then also Ruth's husband dies at the same time. So you've got a father that dies, and you've got two sons that die. So you have, Ruth, you have um, Naomi who in all in a matter of a few verses in a few chapters, she loses everybody close to her. Now, do you think, if you're in that situation, you lose your husband and you lose your two sons, that you might be feeling some despair? You think you might feel that? You, you think you might feel like, God, why in the world did you bring me to this land? Why did you bring me to a place out of my hometown, out of what I'm comfortable with, out of what I know, to a place that is just going to lead to despair. So these two die, and I want to begin to unfold what I think is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Um, but here's what Naomi is dealing with in this time. She's dealing with loneliness. You imagine you lose your husband, you lose your two sons, you're probably asking God, why in the world did you bring me here? I don't understand what's going on. I'm lonely, I don't have a husband. And back in that day, there was no welfare system. There was no person to take care of her. She loses absolutely everything that she's comfortable with. And there's no one to provide for her. So the only option that she has is to go back home. And this is where we pick up the story. So I want you to keep in mind, you've got three women. You've got Ruth, Naomi, and you've got Orpah, who have all lost their husbands. All of them. Every single one of them. And they say, hey, let's go back home, and maybe somebody will take care of us there. So they, they get on their journey. They go back to Bethlehem, which is a town of about 200 people. And as they're leaving, Naomi looks at Ruth, and she looks at Orpah, and she says, listen, don't come with me. Don't come with me. There's nothing for you there. She says, stay in Moab. Stay there. And find yourself husbands and start over. And it says at this very point they start weeping and they say, no, we want to go with you. So they take off a little bit and then Naomi turns back at them and she says, listen, you have to leave. Get out of here. And this is what happens. Orpah, it says Orpah kisses her and she goes back to Moab and we don't know what happens to her after that. Probably to go start a family and start a new life. And this is what happens. But Ruth has a completely different response. And she says this. Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Can you imagine that? So Ruth is saying, listen, Naomi, I'm not going anywhere. I'm following you. I'll follow you to a land that I have no clue what is on the other side. But I'm going to go with you. Because to be honest with you, I've got nothing. I've lost everything. 
I've lost my husband. I've lost how I can provide for myself. Because back in that day, a man provided absolutely everything. And if you lost your husband and if you lost that person, your life was pretty much over. So all of a sudden, we get this first clue as to why this story is important to the Christmas story. So we, we get a little hint and a little clue about what's going on. They go back to Bethlehem. Does anybody know what's significant about Bethlehem? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So just keep that in mind. So here's what happens. Um, picking it back up in Ruth 1, uh, verse 20. So Naomi and Ruth get back into town. And when they get back into town, you have all these people, because it's a small town and we live in Crowley, you guys know this, when something happens to you, what happens? Everybody finds out about it, right? Everybody in the small town knows everybody and everybody knows your business, right? And, and so Naomi and Ruth are coming back in town and people are saying, hey, isn't that Ruth? Isn't, isn't that Naomi? Isn't that the one that lost her husband? Isn't that the one that went to Moab, a foreign country? Isn't that the one that didn't stay in this land? She didn't stick it out. And this is, what, uh, this is what Naomi's response is to people. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She says, this is what she says, because her name actually means pleasant and sweet. So this is what she says, don't call me pleasant and sweet, because that's not me anymore. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can you see the expression on her face? Do you think she's a little angry? Do you think she's a little hurt? Do you think she's a little bitter? Do you think something's going on in her heart of saying, God, I can't believe you did this to me. I can't believe that I left my hometown and I went to a place that I was completely unfamiliar with. I lose my husband and then I lose my two sons. Are you serious? So as you read this story of Ruth, in the first two chapters, you are thinking this entire story is about loss. It's about misfortune. It's about something where you can find absolutely no hope. But the question that I have today is, does the story have to be about loss? Or can it be about this? Can it be about how Naomi and Ruth decide to handle that loss and how they decide to respond to that loss. Is there a moment of time when they grieve? Sure. Is there a moment of despair and hopelessness? Sure. But how they respond to that loss is going to truly mark this entire story. I was reading the other day a guy who wrote a book and his name was uh, Gerald's sister. He was in a car accident hit by a drunk driver, and in that car accident, he lost three generations in one accident. He lost his wife, he lost his daughter, and he lost his granddaughter in one car accident. And here's what's crazy. A few months later, he writes a book called A Grace Disguised, and he coins this phrase. He says, the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of the story. Now, it's one thing for me to say that, and it's one thing for him to say that, a person that's lost three people. And, and here's what he's saying. Loss does not have to be the defining moment in your story. Many of you are experiencing hopelessness. 
Many of you are going to show up this holiday and this Christmas, and you're going you're gonna to experience some of those examples that I covered in the beginning. Maybe you're sitting at the table and somebody's not there. Maybe you've got to deal with drama in your family, and, and you feel like, man, all I want to feel for Christmas is just like this Disney kind of like everybody comes together, enjoys food, opens presents, and loves each other and drinks hot cocoa. And it seems like every time you get with your family, that's never the case. Some of you are going to experience loss, and some of you are going to experience heartache. And here's the thing. I want to lovingly tell you that some of you, maybe that's not you right now, but it could be. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to prepare you because as we've been studying over the past few weeks, we know that trials and afflictions will come our way. And how we respond to that loss is going to define our true relationship with Jesus. It's one thing to say, I have hope. But it's one thing to hold on to it in the middle of trials, in the middle of storms. <coughs> loss should not define our story. The defining moment can be our response to the loss we experience. The story doesn't have to be about loss. The story is about responding to loss. So we pick it back up in the book of Ruth, and we're going to see in chapter 3 that the, the, uh, the entire story is about to shift. So in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, you have these people who experience immense pain, immense loss, immense grief, immense despair. They lose a husband. They lose two sons. They have to move back to Bethlehem where people are talking about them. And this is what happens. Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem. And Ruth decides to go into the fields and pick leftover grain. She basically, she goes to a farmer, his name is Boaz, and she says, hey listen, I know they're harvesting all this stuff, can I just follow behind them and any seed that falls to the ground, can I pick it up? And can my mother and, I, and my mother-in-law and I, can we have it? Are you okay with that? He says, sure, you can do that. It'd be the equivalent of somebody who is... Uh, you know, on the streets picking up cans, trying to make money. And you have to commend them, starting somewhere, right? So Ruth is saying, look, I've got nothing. I've got to start somewhere. She says, I'm going to go. I'm going to follow these farmers. And I'm going to pick up grain and pick up seed. Because remember, there's no welfare system in that day. It doesn't, because you lost your job, you can't file for unemployment or you can't do those things, which are all great things about this country. But back in the day... What the farmers were told to do in the way that they took care of the poor was they said, hey, listen, you go to the farmer, you talk to him, and if he allows you to pick up any leftover grain, then you can do it. So that's what she's doing. So she's picking up this grain, and all of a sudden, she runs into this guy named Boaz. And we pick it up in Ruth 2, chapter 3. So she went out and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, now listen to this, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So this is her um, father-in-law. It says, notice the, notice the phrase, as it turned out. She ends up working for Boaz, a wealthy, single, godly, never married, who is a relative of her late husband. Do you think she struck a pot of gold? So she ends up working for this this man who ends up hiring her, saying, listen, I'll allow you to kind of work in my field. And come to find out, he was related to her father-in-law. To, to make a long story short, Boaz notices Ruth, and he likes her. So he befriends her. 
When Naomi finds out what's going on, she decides to play Cupid. Did any of your mothers or mother-in-law decide to go, hey, you need to get out of my house, you need to get married, and they try to hook you up with somebody? Any of your moms tried to do that? I remember my mom doing that to certain brothers in my family, like, dude, you've got to get out of my house, I'm going to find you a girl. If you can't find one, I'm going to find one for you. So this is what she's doing. She says, okay, you've got this guy, he's, he's a relative of my husband, and, uh, or, or my, my dead husband, he's relative, He's rich, um, he loves Jesus, he's not married, so here's what I want you to go do. This might sound weird, but she says, when he eats, and he drinks, and then he falls asleep, I want you to go and put on your best robe, put on, take a bath, put some perfume on, put some makeup on, and when he falls asleep, I want you to go lay by his feet. Now, when we read that, you're kind of going, what in the heck is she telling her to do? Are you serious? It's, it's not that at all. And back in the day, this was a custom. When you would do this, when you would lay by somebody's feet, it would say this about yourself. You'd say, hey, listen, I'm available, and if you would like to marry me, here I am. Wow. <laughs> here I am. So that's, back in the day, that was the custom to do that. So here's what happens. Let me read. So suddenly, can you just imagine this? Suddenly, around midnight, Boaz awakened. He sat up startled. There was a, a woman lying at his feet. He says, who are you? He demanded. you imagine this? It's dark. He wakes up. Somebody's tickling his feet. He's trying to get the, the stuff out of his eyes, and he sees a woman at his feet. Either he's like, what the heck, or thank you, Jesus. It's one of the two. I probably would think it's probably, thank you, God. I'm single. This is, uh, thank you. Um, so it goes on. It says, it is I, sir, Ruth. She replied. And listen to what she says. Listen, this is just, this always blows my mind. Make me your wife. Make me your wife according to God's law, for you are my close relative. And this is what he says. This is, this is uh, the NLT version. He says, thank God for a girl like you. Said, and this is what he says. He says, don't worry about a thing, my child. I'll handle all the details for everyone. Knows what a wonderful person you are. Isn't that a great story? You have a woman who leaves her land, who loses her husband, who comes back to Bethlehem, who knows nothing. Absolutely nothing. Knows nobody. Has no job. Has no work. Is completely left to fend for herself. And just by chance, which is, there's no chance, but God ordains her to work in the field of Boaz, who ends up becoming a relative of her mother-in-law. <coughs> Boaz allows her to begin to pick wheat from that field. And then on top of that, she decides, hey, I'll take a risk, and I'm going to go lay at this guy's feet. And Boaz says, thank God for a woman like you. I'll take care of everything from here. I'll take care of everything from here. Boaz is what's called throughout the book of Ruth, the guardian redeemer. Now let me explain that to you. So back in the day, because there was no welfare system or anything going on like that, they set up this thing called the Guardian Redeemer. If you were a woman and you lost your husband, there was a relative, if you went back to them, that they would take care of you. They would take care of you. Now, in front of Boaz, there was actually one other person that was supposed to take care of Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz goes to them and he says, listen, 
Oh, they had this girl, she was laying at my feet. I really like her. And instead of you buying the land and buying the field to support her family, I would like to purchase the land and I would like to take Ruth as my wife. And he said, sure, go for it. Go for it. Because back in the day, if you married a foreigner, that was a thing that was frowned upon. So I want you to get this. This is a woman who comes into Bethlehem. Everyone, if you were to marry this woman, it'd be frowned upon because she was from Moab and you were from Bethlehem. Two totally different customs. And Boaz says, listen, I'll take care of you. I'll take you in. To me, it sounds a lot like the story of Jesus, right? People who are lost, who are hurting, who are hopeless, who are dealing with hurt, who are dealing with pain, who are dealing with struggles, who don't deserve Christ. And what does he do? He says, I'll, I'll, I'll take you in. I'll take you in. This is no act of small kindness, especially when you consider the fact that Ruth is a Moabite. No man, like I said earlier, would take this woman. But Boaz says, I will love who no one else will love. I will care for who no one else will care for. I will redeem the one who no one else will redeem. Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. This does not have to be a story about loss as much as it is a story about redemption. Because here's the deal. A lot of us, if we focus on the hurt and the pain that is right in front of us, it's hard to see hope. It's hard to see that light. It's hard to see getting out of whatever you're stuck in. But I want you to know, if you've surrendered and you've submitted your life to Jesus, that there is a guardian redeemer who brings you hope and is willing to take you and pull you and accept you no matter what you've done in life. So listen to this, Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. That is a story of absolute, pure redemption and grace. Because here's, here's what's so significant about Ruth having a son. When she lost her husband, her entire bloodline and her family was gone. They had nothing. Naomi's bloodline and family was gone. And so this son is like redemption. Because Boaz comes along and says, I'll buy the property. I'll take responsibility. I'll be a man. I'll take care of you. I'll feed you. I'll clothe you. I'll marry you. Don't worry about anything from here on out. Some of you think that this Christmas you're going to get what you want. But remember, God gives us exactly what we need. Maybe like that video that we just watched. Maybe this Christmas, you're opening that present, and you're expecting something to happen. And when you get deep down into that box and you finally open it up, what happens? You've got addiction, you've got abuse, you've got death, you've got loneliness, you've got loss, you've got adultery, you've got pain, you've got infertility, you've got cancer, you've got divorce. It's not what we wanted, right? It's not what we signed up for. But I want you to know that no matter what you're going to encounter, what you're going to experience, that if you've surrendered and you've submitted your life to Jesus, there is always a story of redemption that is being played out. So you might see yourself in a situation now that is completely hopeless, and you define it as just total, complete loss. There's no way out of this. 
None. I'll be totally candid with you. My brother, uh, my, my fourth brother, uh, a few years ago, he started dabbling in some things, and he got really heavy into drugs. And he got so into it um, that he started having people, like, look for him and chase him. It started getting scary, you know? And I remember weekend after weekend, I would just sit with him, pray with him, and just encourage him, and just say, Nathan, this is not who you are. And year after year after year, it seemed like every <coughs> single word was just like going in one ear, coming out of the other. And it seemed like a story of great loss. My parents were grieving, my brothers were grieving, like, man, what are you doing? Such a talented guy, he has so much future ahead of him. And it seems like he was just throwing it all away. I remember night before he got caught um, dealing drugs and he went out and I'll leave some of the stuff unnamed but he went off and he broke into a guy's house, did all this stuff and uh, the night before he gets caught the night before he spends a few months in jail I sit down with him at this coffee shop and I said, Nathan, I want you to know and it's the first message that I shared with you guys that I preached here at this church, I said Nathan, life is a fight you want to know Jesus, you have to fight to know him. You have to pursue him every single day, and you have to ask for help. And I thought nothing of those words. Okay, nothing. Here's what's crazy. My brother is shrunk out on drugs. He says, he's got these words just ringing through his ears. He goes down to this, this place in Lake Charles, and he gets tattooed on his arm to fight to know. So um, all this stuff goes down. A few days later, I go see him. He got caught. They put him in jail for, uh, I think, about two months. And I go see him. He's like, hey, man, see this? It's the first time I've seen him. He said, he said, what you said that night, he said, it changed my life. God was starting a story of redemption. He saw himself as completely hopeless. He saw himself as, am I just going to have to deal with this addiction the rest of my life? And what happens? God gave him not what he wanted, but what he needed. What he wanted was a quick fix. What he wanted was, can I just wake up the next morning and not have to fiend after these drugs? God says, because I love you so much, I'm going to throw you in jail and make you hit rock bottom until you realize you have to, you need me. And you need people around you. And, and I'm happy to tell you now, he's in, he's in our team challenge. He's doing so good. So good. Um, he actually took my, my sermon uh, to fight to know, and he preached it to his whole class a few months ago, of all the people there. And God's just changing his life. It's a story of redemption, a story that was filled with <laughs> so much heartache, so much pain, so much grieving for somebody that you love that you think is throwing it all away. And then God says, you know what? I'm a redeemer. It's what I do. I'm going to take a story that seems hopeless and I'm going to turn it around. Because of the guardian redeemer, Naomi gained a grandson. She thought it was all over for her family. Both of her sons had died. Now because of this grandson, there was hope in their family. This grandson would bring a great blessing to them and ultimately would be the salvation of their family. Here's the last picture that we get in the book of Ruth with Naomi. The last picture, the last phrase that's ever mentioned, it says that she's holding her grandson, his name is Obed, 
holding him, rocking him to sleep. It's the last picture that we get. She's content, she's happy, there's a story that seemed like hopelessness, and all of a sudden God comes in, redeems, gives her a son, her name gets to live on, now she's provided for, now she's taken care of. Listen to this, these are important words in Ruth 4.17. This is speaking of Ruth's son, Naomi's grandson. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi's great-grandson is King David, and Ruth's great-grandson is King David. You can't always get what you want, but if sometimes you might just find out you get what you need. How does this relate to the Christmas story? If you open up, and you can go back and read it later on, if you open up to Matthew 1, here's what you're going to find. And this is where it gets powerful. Everything that I've just said ties in to right here. In Matthew 1, it begins to list out the genealogy of Jesus. And there's these names. There's Rahab, who's a prostitute from Jericho, right there in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay? So Jesus, in his genealogy, there's a prostitute. I want you to keep that in mind. You know who, do you know who um, Rahab, you know who her son is? <coughs> Boaz. So Rahab has Boaz. Boaz is the one that takes in Ruth and Naomi. The mother of Boaz, who married the Moabite pagan woman Ruth and redeemed her. Three years later, they have a son, Obed. And guess what? He names his son Jesse. You know who? Um, then Jesse has a son, and he names his son King David, which many of us know. And out of David's bloodline literally comes Jesus. So you have this entire story that seems like it's wrapped up in just complete and utter hopelessness. And the Savior of the world decides to come out of this. You've got Naomi who loses a husband. She moves back to town. Ruth marries Boaz. They have a son named Obed. He has a son named Jesse. She has a son, he has a son named David. And ultimately Jesus comes out of that. Way down inside the box where Naomi and Ruth couldn't even see was Jesus waiting to be born from their family line. Listen, I know it's hard not to give up sometimes. I know some of you feel like, you're like, Pastor Zach, I am prayed out. <laughs> I have sought God as much as I can. I have prayed every single day to try to get myself out of this despair, out of this hopelessness. But before you give up, I want you to remember that God has a story and loss does not define your story. Before you give up, remember that loss and pain does not define your story. A lot of you don't like what's on the outside of the box. But through Jesus, the guardian redeemer, you can. Jesus can bring you hope. That's ultimately why he came. There was a world that was filled of hopelessness and brokenness. And Jesus came to give us hope. When Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he meant it. Listen, I am by no small stretch of the imagination thinking that every single one of you in here are going to have the perfect Christmas. Many of you are going to show up 
Christmas morning, Christmas Eve, you're going to spend time with family, and there's going to be a lot of people hurting and dealing with things. There's going to be a lot of people struggling. There's going to be a lot of people that are dealing with despair and hopelessness, and maybe you're one of them. We have a family in our community in Jennings, um, a few, actually a few months ago, who lost their son. I mean, you imagine going, I can't imagine having four beautiful children going to a Christmas without one of them. It would seem like things would be hopeless. But the thing that I love about the gospel of Jesus is that he always takes what is broken and he always takes what is hopeless and he says, I'll use that. I'll redeem that. He does exactly what Boaz says. Nobody wants you, Ruth. Nobody will take you. I'll take you. I'll take care of you. I'll provide you. I'll provide for you. I'll be your redeemer. That's who God wants to be this Christmas season. Listen, I know it's hard for some of you, but I want you to understand whatever loss you've experienced, whatever pain you're going through, it does not define you. It does not define you. It ultimately is going to make you put your trust and your hope in Jesus more than you ever have before. The three years that my dad battled with cancer, it did something to all of us. All of us in the family. Because it's not like you can fix anything when somebody's dealing with cancer or somebody's dealing with a disease or sickness. You can't do anything. You're helpless. So what do you do? You draw near to God. You draw near to God. So I want to close with this this morning. If you're dealing with a situation of hopelessness, of despair, of pain, I want to challenge you. Don't run from Jesus. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to fix the problem. You can't. Run to him. Draw near, draw closer to Jesus. Draw near to people here. Draw near to a church family. Allow people to come into your life and say, hey, listen, I want to help you. I want to help you get through this situation. I don't know if we've got any hunters in here. I don't do it too often. But the one thing that I do know about duck hunting and one thing I know about, about goose hunting is this. If he flies alone, he's going to die. Right? Because he's easy to pick out. Super easy to pick out. You're not trying to focus on four or five different birds. Which one do I shoot? Which one do I shoot? It's just one. You take it out. Don't walk alone. Don't walk alone. God never intended for us to walk alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that this morning, God, that you have a story of hope. God, whatever pain, whatever despair that people are dealing with in this room, God, we pray that even now that you begin to create a story of redemption. God, where people are looking at their situations and saying, it's too dark, there's too much despair, there's too much that's gone on, I'm too far gone. God, I pray that you would meet them exactly where they're at. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.